Hello and welcome to The Thing About Golf, the podcast series from Golf Australia magazine that seeks to shed light on that unanswerable question, just what is it about golf that gets so deep under people's skin? My name's Rod Murray, and in a few moments we'll be chatting with Wade Ormsby. But before we meet the two-time Hong Kong Open winner, I have some quick news to share with you all. For the past year and a bit, it's been my enormous privilege as host of this show to chat at length with some of the game's most interesting people. From administrators and players to writers and entrepreneurs, it's been one of my favourite projects to be a part of. But as I hinted at in closing in our last episode, there are some changes afoot here at The Thing About Golf, and to be honest, I'm even more excited about what we're going to be doing moving forward, as they say. There was air quotes there for those who couldn't tell. If you're a reader of Golf Australia magazine, and if you're not, you should be, or even if you're just a keen follower of the game, you'll be familiar with the name John Huggin. Huggy is one of the very best writers in the business and his monthly musings in the magazine have earned him several awards. In fact, he's so good, we even had him on this very show as a guest back on episode 9. But in this new digital age, even old dogs have to learn new tricks, and I'm extremely pleased to say that after much cajoling with various treats, Huggy has learned how to use a microphone, and drumroll please, will be joining us as a host from episode 32. Huggy, say hello to the people, your people. Hello to the people. <laughs> Fantastic to have you along, mate. Lovely to be uh, having a chat. This is all pretty exciting stuff. We'll share the hosting duties you and I on a rotating basis, so people will get one of us each month in their ears. Every two weeks the show comes out, so that's going to be some exciting stuff, and I think it's going to add something really uh, really good to the show. As a, uh, the person doing all of the organising and all of the interviews, there can be a bit of sameness, so it's going to be fantastic to have somebody help out, and you would be the best person for the job. You've been a guest on countless podcasts, Huggy, and I've shared commentary with you on radio, the Australian Open radio out here. I'm going to guess, though, that you never really thought in your wildest dreams when you started that you'd end up doing something like this, sitting and doing lengthy interviews with subjects. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Um, you know, one of my favourite things to do in print is to to sit down and do a long Q&A with um, you know, usually a top player, and that's the, the time when you can really get under their skin a little bit. I mean, usually we're you know, you're doing five ten minutes, but if you get people to sit down for forty five minutes to an hour, say, um, you really get to know them so much better, and you can move around subject wise. I mean, it's not just the you know the usual generic you know what did you hit to the fourteenth green stuff. It's <laughs> it's actually um, much more in depth than that. So I'm looking forward to this uh, this new experience if yeah. you like. Now, Huggy, it's a whole new digital world for us, so you're going to have to learn some new sayings. And the first one is in the can. Your first interview is in the can. Uh, one of the best sports writers in the business, Tom Callahan, a mentor of yours and a friend. Uh, I've had a listen. It's a terrific chat. What was that like, though, for you to sit down with somebody you have sort of so much respect for? It's a different sort of an experience, isn't it? Yeah, I'm be interested to, to listen to it back. I haven't done that yet. Um, Unique experience for me to talk to somebody I know so well and I'm so close to. I mean, he and I talk on the phone two or three times a week, so it was it was it felt weird actually to talk to him, you know, in an interview setting. But um, with Tom, when people listen to it, I think they'll they'll gather that Tom Tom likes to talk and he tells <laughs> and he tells great stories. So I, there's not a lot of me I don't think in this interview. There's just a lot of listening on my end. The perfect introduction. Well, of course, he is one of the very best storytellers, and he has a whole bunch of great stories to tell, isn't it? Hasn't he? So it's the uh, perfect combination. Although, Huggy, as I did when I interviewed you, completely missed Seve and had to turn the tape back on so that we could capture all that. You missed one of Tom's great stories as well. So I want you to share that now before we wrap this up and get on with Wade Orr. Well, I, 
I think I missed more than one. I mean, there are so many with Tom, but I mean, he's 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 known and talked to just about every great sportsman, not just golfers of the last sort of half century. But one of my favourites was one that is pretty topical at the moment. And as I say, I do regret that I didn't remember. But uh, this was um, back to a time years ago, long before Donald Trump was uh, president of the United States. He turned up at a boxing match where Tom was was sitting ringside, and the pair of them were introduced after the the the, bo- uh, the boxing was finished. And and uh, Trump goes, "Well, you know, well, Tom, you're you're a great writer. And would you be would you have any interest in uh, writing my next book?" To which Tom replied, I wouldn't have any interest in reading your next book. <laughs> so, and, and I think the relationship went downhill from there. <laughs> there you go. I think we know which way Tom might have voted in the uh, the recent elections there. Fantastic stuff. Well, of course, Huggy, Tom's just the beginning. I know that you've got a contact book that's bulging with famous names, and a lot of them will probably appear here in the coming months. But I also know, and this is one of the things that we wanted to do with Thing About Golf, there are many, many people that a lot of fans will either never have heard of because they were from a previous generation or that just have a remarkable remarkable golf story to tell and it never gets told because they're not famous and I know that you know plenty of them as well and I'm hoping that we'll hear some of those from you too yeah I'm hoping that uh, you know we we don't just do top golfers I mean you've done a great job of that already with uh, some of the people that I I'd never heard of them and but they were great stories and that that's really what we hope to do on this I think yeah, the idea with this one is to sort of build trust with the audience that when they see the new episode, even if they've never heard the name, they trust our judgment that there's a good story to tell and they trust our ability to help the guest tell it well. That's what we're trying to do here. So we'll do our very best. And Huggy, uh, you will undoubtedly contribute an awful lot to that. I'm really looking forward to uh, to editing your stuff each month. Huggy won't be doing the intros and the outros. He just does the proper work and I'll do the trimmings <laughs> for each of his episodes. Who knows? A few I, more treats. I you to add, um, you're doing them because you're the only one of the two of us who can do this. (laughs) I'll get some more treats, Huggy. Maybe we can teach you. You've done remarkably well with the microphone and the recording (laughs) process, so uh, well done. Can I just say on behalf of the listeners and from me personally, Huggy, I really am pleased that you've agreed to be part of the show. Really looking forward to seeing where we can take it, mate. Welcome aboard. Yeah, Yeah, me too. Thanks very much. Yes, absolutely fantastic to have Huggy on board, and I do hope that you're as excited about that prospect as I am. However, I can tell you that if there's one thing Huggy hates... It's self-indulgence, and we've already had far too much of it on this episode. So let's move on to what is important for episode 31, and that is the life and career of Wade Ormsby. Twice a Hong Kong Open winner, Ormsby is one of those golfers who's flown mostly under the radar for most of his career. It'd be fair to say he was a bit of a late bloomer in terms of his golf, but as you'll hear in this conversation, he has no regrets about learning his craft on the job. Hailing from Adelaide, where his father Peter, also a professional, owns one of the most successful off-course retail shops in the country, we caught up with Wade in his hometown, where he was into day eight of a 14-day quarantine after returning from the UK. From his multiple successful trips to Q School, to a lifelong friendship with Adam Scott, to the business realities of playing golf for a living, Ormsby is open, honest and reflective in this interview, which I do hope that you enjoy. Well, Wade Ormsby, we appreciate you taking some time. Although you've got plenty on your hands, you're in quarantine. This is your first go at it. We know that golfers being regular international travellers is probably going to be a part of life for a while, but you just told me you're not too keen on it, so you're going to try and not do too much of it. Yeah, exactly. So obviously with the pandemic, we're faced with um, with this quarantine aspect of it. So um, yeah, I've just we've had to kind of make our... Um, tournament schedules in massive blocks because that's the only way you can do it because you just got to try and avoid this quarantine as much as you can. But anyway, I've got through my first 
stint of it and halfway through my quarantine back here in Oz and uh, ready for the Aussie summer. Yeah, as we just discussed, you had a nice view from your hotel room there in Adelaide, but it's the same view all day, every day. <laughs> never changes. A gilded cage is still a cage, isn't it? So even though you're in a nice room, it's not like being on holidays. So I do feel for you and uh, we appreciate you taking the time under the circumstances. The podcast is called The Thing About Golf, Wade. So that's our jumping off point. What's the thing about golf for Wade Ormsby? That's an interesting one. I feel like it put on the spot a bit for that. But um, I think as an individual sport, it's you kind of versus a golf course with your, uh, with your clubs. I love that there's no judges or anyone controlling your destiny. It's all about – it's all up to you, you know, and that's the thing I, I love about it. You know, I could never play a sport where someone's controlling me or, or selectors or whatever else, you know, and especially at a professional level. But even back at an amateur level, it's great. You can just grab your clubs and go out there and play the course at any time of day and feel like you're getting something out of it and you've got that kind of level of competition against the golf course. So I've always loved that. Obviously, probably sounds like I'm a competitive person. And I guess I am, you know. I think a sport does that to you. And um, no, I've always loved golf for that aspect of it. It's a unique type of competition golf, though, isn't it? In particular, I suppose for us recreational golfers especially. I'll tee up in the Wednesday comp, and if my mate's playing well, I'm genuinely happy for him, and I want to see him go on with it and do well. But equally at the same time, if he starts hitting him in the water and racking up sevens and eights, I think that's hilarious. The competition's not direct, is it? It's this weird camaraderie that we've all got, even though we're all playing against each other. Yeah, exactly. It's probably the same out there on tour. You know, you've got – you enjoy – well the, well, the competition's always competition, and it doesn't matter what level it is, whether it's club or on tour. You know, you're always you're always pushing, and like I said, it's not always a big tournament like we're playing in or whatever. It can be club golf or whatever. You know, it's always nice getting the clubs out of the boot of the car and go and try and each day to put a round together, and you don't know what you're going to get. Some days you warm up bad, and it feels good. Other days you warm up great, and it feels and it, and it, turns out terribly on the golf course and that's just a wonderful game of golf you know there's so many things that come into it and it's just a massive battle of the head so um that's um, all part of it from the outside wade it would be easy for us to assume that golf was always going to be in your future your dad is one of australia's best known well club pros we call him but really he's a he's a fantastic golf businessman inventor of the swing guide owner of one of the biggest retail golf shops in australia there in adelaide i'm not sure whether that's sort of still going have we got that right was golf always going to be in your future or was there a time when you kind of rejected it no absolutely it's 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 been in the family the whole way through and still is um I think it probably goes back to my grandmother, she, uh, Mary Ormsby. Um, she was a lawn bowler and won a huge amount of titles and represented Australia, um, I think, for a record amount of time. So, no, Gran was – I guess she's got the competitor in there with the individual sport. I don't know if that has something to do with it, but I kind of come from there. And then my dad and, and Uncle Dave, they both got into golf, both their apprenticeship around a similar time down at Glenelg Golf Club. So – that was the kind of history of it. And then for myself, it was more my brother, Jordan. Jordan is only 16 months older than me, but he was a much better player than me. And he was always destined for the professional game a lot more than me. And I was always into cricket and footy and mainly cricket. And um, then it, then I started to want to try to not catch my brother, but I wanted to do what my brother was doing. And I was always, well, I was never as good as Jordan. So I had to, work and work and work and he was always a lot talent a lot more talented than me so um i guess that work ethic got driven into me quite early by myself 
more than anything just because that's what I had to do to try and keep up with my brother. So then I got to around that 14, 15 year age time kind of um, zone and um, yeah, I just really put my head down. A couple of guys from Adelaide had gone to college in the States and I kind of, I didn't hate school but I kind of knew I was going to finish school over here and that would have led to having the college door open for me. So I just kind of the natural pr- progression from there from just working away at my game and kind of keeping my options open. But I really, I guess it was my brother more than anything was that carrot in front of me that made me drive to be better. And then the byproduct of that was just being a decent player and then the than the lure of professional golfers in front of me. So I hope that makes sense. A gift, well, it does, a gift that continues to give today. I never even knew you had a brother. What became of Jordan? Um, yeah, Jordan was one of these guys that was good at everything he touched. So he was great at cricket, good footy and whatever else. <laughs> and sometimes it's those guys that don't go on with it because maybe, I'm not sure, we've, we've had a chat about it since, you know, it's because maybe you don't have to work as hard and, I'm not sure. I'm not saying he's lazy by any means, but he was just always good enough to um, to be good, you know. So um, you didn't have to work that much harder. But he played the Aussie junior team with Adam Scott, and I think Ogilvy was in that team, and a couple of other guys. I can't remember who was in that six-man team. He, so he had a really good junior career, but um, he just didn't really like the travel, and I think that started to hit home pretty hard early on. So. I think he just got sidetracked away from the game around the 18, 19, 20-year-old bracket. And um, now he's gone on to have a successful business. He um, does um, – he's in the in the golf cart business here in South Australia, sales, service, and hire business. And um, also he does um, Jacobson turf equipment, which is obviously um, like green-keeping mm-hmm. equipment, mowers and, um, and sporting fields and all that. So he runs a – Runs a decent-sized business here in Adelaide and does well, so I guess he's still in the sport in some way or another. But, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of funny where how life turns out and he'd never think he'd be kind of selling golf carts and, and mowers. But, um, no, he's, um, he's doing well, so I'm really happy for him. And he never has to quarantine. It it begs the question because exactly you know, right. he, he just stays just stays in Adelaide and makes his living and everything's uh, everything's fine. Thank you very much. It does beg the question though, and it's it's one for I guess probably for all golfers about what when you get to a certain level, what's the most important? It sounds like really what the only thing lacking there for Jordan is drive. When you get that sort of supernatural talent plus a drive, which I think it really takes to get to the level that you've got in golf, you get Tiger mm-hmm. Woods, don't you? And Jordan Spieth, that's the sort of player that you get. Without that. I wonder whether you can get there. Have you come across anybody who's just naturally good enough that without being driven can have a career in professional golf? Um, I think this has been spoken about quite a bit in the last 20 years, but um, now you definitely see guys come through which have a natural gift to hold the golf club and move well and and whatever else, but you, but you still need that thing between is mm. every day when you wake up, you want to be good and you want to get better at this and you and you want to achieve things. And like that guy that just won in Europe, Callum Shequin, he's a he's a different makeup of a good player, if that makes sense in a way. Like ever since he's come out, he's had an amazing um, talent, you know, and he should have won three or four times already, and now he's won. And let's see, you know, it can go both ways for these guys. He should kick on and be a Ryder Cup team player if he gets everything right and other – some things it can be the pinnacle of their career. They can just push till they win their first tournament and they just plateau out. So it's so difficult because you need 
it's not just that natural talent you know there's another one thomas peters is a huge talent you know like um but these are the guys in that top three percent of talent as i see it you know everyone sees talent differently but um yeah i think the drive and the want to succeed and want to get that hundred percent out of yourself for me that's the way i've tried to operate and i put a lot of emphasis on that because that's um that's the only way I know, to be honest. That's, if, if, if I don't push myself hard, I'm not good. So I need to push myself harder. Otherwise, I don't have a job. So <laughs> it's difficult for me to see it from other people's perspective. But you're right. You know, you get talent, you get drive, you get work ethic, you get a good a good brain working between your ears on the golf course, and you get Tiger Woods. And um, that's as simple as it is, I think. And it's also that it's that rare <laughs> to get all of that yeah. together. That's uh, that's what that tells us. Yeah. Thomas Peters, not only one of the most naturally gifted and beautiful players to watch play the game, one of the great club snappers. Breaks yeah, clubs around his yeah, neck, which takes both strength, uh, courage, and form. So he's uh, <laughs> a joy to watch. He can, he can pop clubs a big fella, but he is a great guy. You know, He's been a mate ever since he came on tour. I actually played with him when I went back to Q school. I can't remember my last time going back there, but I played with him in the last round there. An Australian guy was caddying for him, Roger. And I remember um, my current caddy, he was on my bag then because we'd been together a long time and I was looking at Thomas hit some shots and go, this guy is so good. He's We had all these bets on tour kind of thing internally saying he's going to be top 50 in the world within five years or whatever, but he was that good and he is that good. He just needs to... Yeah, it just depends how high he wants to go in the game, you know, but... um. He is good. It, it's funny. So I, I follow him at the World Cup down here at Kingston Heath when he played with Coles. It's just, just phenomenal to watch, just a magnificent player, as you say, which is interesting, and it's a bit of a by the way, but John Huggan tells a great story about caddying for Mike Clayton many years ago at a, think, at a Heineken Classic down here, and they were paired with a very young Nicholas Colesarts, and you would know Nicholas, hits the ball yep. magnificently, incredible talent himself, fantastic player, and they walked off the course, and Huggy said to Clayton's, He's a magnificent hitter of the ball, that Colesarts, isn't it? If he ever learns how to play golf, he'll be quite dangerous. <laughs> From outside golf, it doesn't make any sense, but they're almost two different skills, aren't they? The ability to physically hit the ball and then the ability Absolutely. to actually play golf. Absolutely. Um, I've, I've never been a good ball hitter, if that makes sense. You know, I, I look at kids and amateurs and everything else and say, oh, funny, I could hit it like that. But <laughs> then people watch me hit it and they think that I hit it perfect. But... Um, yeah, I know. I know what you're saying. Um, yeah, Nico's another amazing talent, you know. But he's just got a different type of persona about him, Nico. You know, um, I don't want to sit down and talk about all the different players, but Nico's he's been out on tour a long time, and he's a great player, massively gifted again, and um, almost won the Italian Open last week. Finished second, and lost by a shot. So, no, all these guys have had great careers. It's so kind of fickle this game out on tour to what determines getting the most out of yourself and not getting the most out of yourself and everyone having their opinion on how your career should go. But I think most of us, you know, you always put all the put all aspects of your game on the table to try and work out the best way to go all the time. You're consistently doing that to try to maximize your performance. And you don't always get those decisions right. You get them right for you at the time, but everyone's got their opinion on which way you should have gone. He should have had a coach early in his career. He shouldn't have or all this kind of stuff. And, um, yeah, we're like any other business, you know. You kind of you keep faced with all these decisions. You change coach, you change caddy. Should you have a mental coach? Should you not? Should you play this schedule, that schedule, and and all these little crossroads and forks, you know, determine your career. And you gotta 
and there's no perfect playbook for everyone. You've got to work it out as you go along, and that's um, that's part of life. It's part of business, and it's no different in professional sport. Yeah, golf very much so, isn't it? What works for you won't work for Adam Scott. What works for Adam Scott won't work for Laura Davies. What works for Laura Davies won't work for Kari Webb. There really is no textbook, is there? And trying to no. copy somebody else or find that textbook, that can be a rabbit hole that can cost years of a professional career. Yeah, exactly right. You know, we're faced with golf tuition at all different levels, you know, whether it's looking at track man numbers getting slammed up on Instagram every day or or five-minute videos from renowned golf coaches or you coach down your local club or your mate telling you what to do. They're all different ways information is presented to these to us these days and, you, and you've got to kind of siphon through it or to work out what's relevant for you. You know, everyone's got their pie and what makes them good and and what aspects of the game you need to work on to get better. And I think if you're really honest with yourself and you put it on the table, you can kind of work out what's right for you. You're right. And it's not it's it's different for everyone. And um and um yeah, we're in right in the middle of this this phase where everyone's smashing it and Bryson's kind of done that to us and it's probably been around for 25 years since 96 when Tiger came out and he was hitting it a mile back then so or relative to the field so it's not it's nothing new we just got to um you just got to absorb the information the correct way and get your most out of it and um go from there when do you play your best golf way and what I mean by that is it a physical thing or is it a mental emotional thing i would imagine the physical doesn't change enormously once you get you i'm sure it changes and there are days when you hit it better than others but is that the final does that have the final say on how well you play or are there other things is it happiness and calmness and are there are there other factors yeah i think there's um it's kind of pretty divided into three little areas you know i think you can put it into the where you're happy expectations everything else in your life but your expectations get rolled into that kind of mental part of it then you've got your got your long game and your short game or so but you're scrambling and you're putting and then your ball strike you know it's so easy to focus on just how the club feel or how the ball feels coming off the club which is your ball striking aspect and any one week on tour you're going to get 60 percent of the guys playing that are going to hit it good enough to win a golf tournament so then it gets down to the other two elements i said which is um kind of your mental and your well-being and all that and life in general. So, again, you're going to get probably a third of the guys out of that 60% I just said hitting it good that are in a really good place there and thinking well and got their expectations in check and everything else. So now you're down to probably 20 or 30 guys and then whoever putts and scrambles good is going to win the golf tournament or be there on Sunday. So um, I saw an interesting stat pop up on Instagram again, um, a renowned putting coach. He circled the last nine tournaments on tour, PGA Tour, I think it was only, with the shots gained, and it was all putting, even Bryson. You know, the guys that the number one area of their game that excelled the week that they won was their putting. So um, I would agree with that. You know, you, you, there's no way you can out-ball strike a field, but you can definitely out-putt a field. So um, I think that's a huge part of winning, of having good weeks, Week in, week out on tour. Well, I think you need to have your game in all three of those areas in in a nice position. So, um, but yeah, winning you definitely got to hold parts. You can't you can't get away with missing five and six and seven footers. You got to make all of them 
pretty much all of them all week to yeah. beat the guys out there these days. You, you can cover a lot of not great ball striking with good putting, but you can't cover poor putting with good ball striking, can you? It just doesn't work no. that other way around. You can't, can't get in the hole from inside four feet. doesn't matter how good no. you hit it, you know, and then the game just becomes so frustrating. It's I think it's more frustrating hitting it good and putting bad than it is yeah. hitting it bad and putting good. You know, you kind of always got that fight in you if you're holding putts and scrambling well. You know, you can always stay alive. If you're not holding putts, you're gone. Yeah. Indeed, it's enough yep. to drive you enough to drive you mad. Is it? You mentioned Bryson and this sort of everything old is new again. Sneed before Woods, Daly before Woods, Nicholas in his time, all were super long relative to the field. What yep. there does seem to have been in the last twenty years is a real shift towards this scientific breakdown of the game. And you would see this on Twitter and Instagram. This notion of the the, the decade system that Scott Fawcett promotes, where we take all of the the artistic sort of thinking out of the game, which is the way I always see the game, why I think it's such a beautiful game, and we just break it down to almost accounting. Where do you sort of stand in that? As a professional, you want to compete. If that's true, then that's what you need to do to compete, then you have to take that way. Or the game attracts artists and engineers in almost equal numbers, doesn't it? Yeah, it's but it's definitely going towards the engineer side of it. That's sport. That's 2020, and you can try to – unlearn it all and whatever you want to do or forget about it but you can't you know it's it's information information's key like i said so you look at any sport that the listeners like outside of golf you know you look at afl football everyone says, oh it's better back in the 70s better back in the 80s and maybe aspects of it was but that's not what we're faced with now we've got computers we've got sensors we've got video replay we've got everything now and to be good you've got to use it and and it's just, I always use the analogy with motorsport because I love motorsport. You know, it's like going back in the in the 70s. Everyone loves that era. But now you've got you've got hundreds of sensors over the race cars and you've got 100 engineers sitting back in London while guys are racing in Italy analysing what's going on to get the best outcome for the day. And that's what we deal with. Well, that's what we're dealt with. And we need to – you've got to embrace that because that's where we are. We're not – we aren't in 1970. So we've got track man. We've got – stats we've got video we've got great coaches we've got amazing equipment so why not use it to be good and it's just natural progression in sport it's natural progression in life so um guys are just decoding the game in a different way and um whether you like it or not that's the way it's going so we just gotta keep pushing do you like it does it make the game Uh, less interesting in some ways that's a very good question i I like it because you've got more, not control, it's not the right word, but you've got everything more in front of you. So if you can be more diligent of combing through all the information, you can get somewhere with it. So I kind of don't mind that aspect of it. I like, I think like any golfer, you know, you love to play with your natural flair, whatever that is, and move the ball around and scramble and spin the ball and all that. I like that kind of golf. And, um, yeah, I no, I'd say probably no. I'd probably go a little bit back towards the old way. But I think a lot of that comes back to the golf course setup. If you set the golf courses up properly, which you can never always control because you've got weather mm-hmm. component of it, but if you get firm, bouncy golf course, you don't even need that much rough. You know, you're just enough rough that you're going to get unpredictable flight, flyer, um, scrappy lies, and all that, which makes it more difficult to control the spin on the ball, which in turn makes it con- more difficult to control the distance and the direction of your ball. If you can get that component of it right, I think it lends itself back more to that creative 
um, style of play, like we saw at the President's Cup, you know, the way Royal Melbourne was set up was mega. And I think everyone will, everyone likes that type of golf. It's just that we don't have the venues week in, week out, and the huge amount of preparation to go into that to, to pump out those style of golf courses week in, week out, because we are pushed and pulled around the world for a number of different reasons to play on venues, new venues, old venues, for a number of different reasons. And a lot of them are commercial. Mm. There's, of course, you're right. I've not yet met a golfer, professional, amateur, or anyone with an interest in the game who didn't think that the President's Cup last year was the absolute pinnacle of golf. And I think there was probably a couple of factors. That one, it's match play, which is always entertaining. It was Tiger at his best on a golf course that allowed him to show what golf can be when you get yeah. the great instrument and the great musician together and playing. But I wonder whether there's a and you would, you might have some thoughts on this. I don't want to get you in any trouble, but it's, no, right. it seems that those who run professional golf have a different view about the product they're trying to sell. Professional golf is just entertainment, of course, but there seems to be a view, particularly in America, that the ball that goes a long way in the air and stops where it lands and leads to lots of birdies is what will attract the biggest crowds. Have they got? Am I right? In that, do you think that I that's true? I think they are 100% focused on that's what they want. It's just what gets pumped out from what gets presented to them, like a venue and all that kind of stuff and weather conditions. And I don't know, I guess you want green on TV. That makes sense. But there's so many aspects that go into choosing a venue and, and um, sponsors being happy where they're putting on the show and all that because there are a number of different things that go into putting golf tournaments on you know we are in the entertainment industry first and foremost you know and golf is 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 secondary to that which i think if we did it purely the other way around and put golf as a sport and sorry golf as a game how would we present it you know you put around all your old bouncy courses and we all walk inside the ropes and like the old days and like the shells a wonderful yeah. world of golf, you know, that kind of look. And I think a lot there's a lot of people that would love it, but then a lot of people love that Phoenix Open type deal where you can have beers on grandstand line fairways and watch guys just stuff it in there all day. So it's it's a different – it's entertainment. So mm. um, I can see both sides of it, but I wouldn't say that they've got it wrong. You know, the people running our sport are still golf enthusiasts and love the game and whatever else. So – it's, it's, yeah, I think money is a massive driver, but we have to be to be viable as businesses, as tools and everything else. So you still got to look at every component of it. You just can't have 35 tournaments around golf courses like Walton Heath or Royal Melbourne every year. It wouldn't, it wouldn't tick everyone's boxes as viewers and everyone else. Um, but kind of going back to the point you mentioned earlier in that question, it's like the Bryson type thing and all that, but it gets clicks. It's what people are, are kind of um, clicking on on um, Instagram and what everyone wants to talk about and all these numbers are blown up because they're at attitude or downwind or it's a one-hit scream or, or whatever it is. You know, that's just – you don't get people talking about how many foot someone hold for the day or how many putts someone hold coming down the stretch. It's just not what we're drawn to as, as people in the game. Everyone likes a big hit. Everyone likes birdies. That's just the way it is. You're sitting at the wrong table in the club. Come and sit with us, mate, when you finish. You'll get all of that stuff about who hold them. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's plenty of golf nerds in the world, as you uh, as you well know. I, I wonder that the question then becomes, Wade, 
is the current trajectory of the game at the professional level particularly sustainable? Distance has become, to some of us, there's a lot of us think that distance has become too important, that it's become such a focus, and we know that the equipment allows and has allowed that to happen and continues to allow that to happen. So I wonder whether it's sustainable. It's in the interests of all of us to think about this as professional administrators, amateur bodies, and club golfers. Uh, is it sustainable in a world of finite resources where golf courses can't continue to grow their footprint because forces from outside of golf that, will stop that? Is it? Uh, do we allow the game to become pitch and putt, or will the market sort it out? Will if that happens? And people turn away from the game, but we change the game so that it goes back to something that we're talking about that we think is more entertaining. I, I wonder about the long term. The here and now is yeah. fairly straightforward, but the long term sustainability. I think there's two parts to that that come straight to mind. I think the first part is yes, we have got great golf courses on certain sized pieces of land, and we can't keep on pushing tees back and and um, making these courses kind of fit the length that we are hitting it today you know i sit there and hit tee shots at raw adelaide i'm going on oh, this is a long hole it has been a long hole ever since i've grown up and i know how far guys are past me on two of the long guys and i stand down there after i crank a drive and i'm like guys are 40 50 yards past this you know they're, they're kind of flicking a shot into these all-time brute holes you know i played growing up so yeah it is that one aspect of it um but i guess it's so quick to point the finger at the golf ball or the equipment but it's everything you know you can't it gets back to that engineer type analysis point we spoke about before you know and it's so many things you know guys are lifting more more relevant for sport now people got so many great trainers out there our coaches are not better than they've ever been that's the wrong way to put it but they're just They've got a lot more answers, a lot more information than they've ever had. You know, you've got you've got TrackMan, which is allowing us to optimize our equipment and our actions and the way we attack the ball. We've got all those answers in that little machine. You know, it's you can try different things and you can speak to other guys at night. Hang on, if you hit up on it more, you tee it there. Are you getting more out of it? Are you launching it there? And we and everyone talks about it. So you're forever putting these things out there, and you're coming up with your perfect little um, combination, you know, so you've got coaching's improved, TrackMan and other devices which are allowing us to optimise our our combinations, golf swings, bodies, speeds, equipment. You know, you've got obviously equipment hasn't been, you know, the driver's been capped for a few years there and the speed of the ball can come off the face. So, they're obviously just making them look pretty to look at and maybe distributing the weight in such a way that's making the sweet spot bigger and more stable. So it's not like they're technically coming off faster. They can't, you know, but you're going to get a larger area and a more stable um, area to hit it. So the drivers are definitely getting better. There's no question. Everyone that comes out is better. Um, and then you've got the golf ball, you know, and the golf ball's, it's, the golf ball's getting a lot of the blame because it's it's right at the end of all those things that I've just said that are that are combining to the ball going further. 
ultimately, you're right about all of that, and I think all sensible people accept that, yes, the, inf- the information from coaches is better, the ability to, to tailor the body for the golf swing to move more efficiently is better, the equipment's certainly a part of it, there may be some agronomy things that are a part of it also, but if yeah, at the end of it all, it is, is the general trajectory the right one? Because if it's not, to come back to the ball, then surely the ball is the simplest way to control it. It's the one yeah. ubiquitous yeah. piece of equipment. Everybody still, has to use a ball. Yeah, you still get the same. Yeah, and there's – I didn't answer part of your first question, but, yeah, I guess the ball is an easy way to roll it back. And I, you know, and what I was going to say in the first part is um, I don't think the amateurs are enjoying the game any less now because of where equipment launch monitors and body and coaches – have sent us. You know, it's, it's a difficult game to play. So any help that we can give to golfers to play the game in a in a better way, I think is good. You know, I think I think the only question's got to be at a professional level, and do we want to alter that at a professional level? Because I think the amateur level can keep on going as far and as hard as you can possibly push it. Because, um, yeah, it's it's tough out there, and you want guys to enjoy the game as much as possible, but. Professional level, yeah, things are probably going to happen in the future. I don't know whether they are. I haven't heard anything, but I'm sure they're working a way, different ways to do it. But the same guys are going to be good, you know. Bryson, mm, whether they bring back 40, 50 yards, he'll he'll work it out, and we'll still work out a way to crank it out there. You know, I've hit wooden wooden drivers with Pro V1s, and if you tee it up and hit up on it, they still go. And, mm-hmm. and, and I've done it the other way around. You know, you can – you quickly find out whether hitting down or hitting up on a certain ball will make it go to what level is, I guess, you kind of um, are restricted with different components, whatever you're testing, but guys work it out pretty quick. Which is and uh, yeah. which is always the, the argument about ruining the game if you roll it back. I tend to agree. Good players figure it out. It doesn't matter what you give them. It doesn't take them long to figure out what works. With uh, like I said, I'd give you a set of left-handed clubs. You'd beat me inside of two days because <laughs> you'd figure it out. That that's the that's the truth of it. Yeah. Back to something you said earlier. You mentioned playing Royal Adelaide. So you've played there your whole life, I imagine, your whole golfing life. Yeah, so, range range golf oh, in Royal Adelaide yeah. in the last twenty years. But yeah, those two of of grown up on. Yeah. So those brute holes where you stand on the tee, and you can remember as a kid that if you thwapped your two best woods, you'd still be pitching there. And now you hit yep. a driver and maybe a six iron or a seven iron, and you think about the long guys on tour who are 40 yards ahead of you flicking a lob wedge or a sand wedge in there. In a broader sense, does the ability to hit at 40 yards past where you are now, does that identify the best all-around golfer? Is it more impressive for Greg Norman to thread a – to, fa- to cut a six iron into that long green and hit it to eight feet, hold the putt with the old equipment, or Thomas Peters to flick a lob wedge in. It's it's probably not a there's probably not a definitive answer to that. But do you see the point of what I'm asking? I w- yeah, I understand what you're saying, but you got you forget that Norman was the sure. the longest or, or, or one of the longest in his time, and where Norman's cutting a six iron in, other guys are cutting in three woods and four woods. So, um, yeah. It is where we're at, you know. You can go to every other sport and go, well, that type of footballer was better in that era because he played it all down on the ground and did that or up in the air or however football is. And 
Formula One, you know, it was all the different manufacturers and now there's only one engine and chassis combination to have and if you've got that, you're good. And so it's, you can't always just turn back to what we think was good because everyone always thinks the era before or two before is better than where we are now. But um, it's, it is where it is and I guess it's in the hands of the, um, professional administrators and the and the two bodies that govern our games, well, two plus a couple of others that are gonna um, pave the road going forward. But I think the games like is good. You know, they got a. I think course setup is a little bit of what a lot of us talk on too. You know, you get to places and they're soft and the and there's not enough penalty out there and it doesn't play f- kind of fiddly enough. You know, I don't know. I know. I'd like that type of golf a lot more but there's a lot of guys that do like it even the power guys still like that style of play so um but you can set a golf course up perfect a week out and all of a sudden it gets <laughs> it rains for three days a, and that's the end of that isn't it rain and you're back yep. to where you started yep guys we started throwing uh, throwing darts so you haven't always got control of these things so um but yeah i'm sure there's things that they can try and um, the way they're going to mold the game going forward yeah i don't throw my head into it too much. I just deal with what's chucked in front of me and I'll um, keep on altering my little equation to try to get the most out of myself and try and win golf tournaments. You've got a day job to figure out, haven't you? So let's go back to talking a bit about that. As a... one of the things I've always known about you, Wade, is that you went to Q School about a million times. But unlike most blokes who go to Q School a million times, you got through 990,000. What do you mm. remember about... I think you did six trips to Q School maybe and I reckon you got through... On five of them, is that right? Am I remembering yeah, that right? I think it's about right. I think I've got my own locker there. In yeah. <laughs> What's um, that about? Do we make every week Q school and Wade Ormsby will be the most successful golfer on the planet? <laughs> I always play my best when I get my back against the wall. I think that's probably one thing to take of it. Um, well, it's it's funny when I come out of amateur golf, I was I guess I was never that good and in that top bracket so i had to do a lot of my learning i kind of guess out on tour so i got my card on my first attempt in europe i had a great little stint there of playing where i think i won first stage and finished third i reckon at stage two of european q school and finished second at finals so what my, 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 like my point is i got on tour in a rush in my own mind and all of a sudden i'm there in the desert playing in the dubai desert classic against guys i've been watching on tv so so I, was, I had to do my learning out on tour, so difficult out there. And um, I managed to scrape through and keep my card the first year. And the second year, I had a good year. And then I went through a turbulent time for probably, I don't know, probably that six or eight-year period after that where, um, yeah, I had to go through the, the seasons where I hit it terrible and then you'd find a way to get your card back at Q school. So you went go through all that learning phase out on tour and, a result of that is losing your card, and then I guess um, the determination and the little guy inside me didn't want to stop playing professional golf, so you find a way to get through Q school and, and go again the next season. So um, no, I don't really I don't really know how to put my finger on it, apart from that I just used to dig as deep as I possibly could on those Q school weeks to make sure I had a job the following year. There's always been standout golfers in every generation going back as you know young Tom Morris, if you like, you want to go back that far. And we've seen the Spieths and the, the Woodses and whatnot. It feels like your journey is more old school. 
This was the golf career that most professional golfers had. You had your standouts, obviously, but most professional golfers had. We feel like we're in an era that's different now. We've got kids stepping out of college winning in their first year. Morikawa was already a major champion. Wolf has won on tour. Hoyland has won on tour. Um, you would see young guys in Europe. Bob McIntyre, he's not as young as those guys, but young guys. Has the game has the game changed in that way? Do you think? Have you seen that that change? I mean, we all age and and see the information. I think guys are presented with a lot more good information if they get their head around a a method, not just swing everything. You know, if they get their head around thinking correctly pumping out the right numbers on track, man, knowing how to pump out a golf score, knowing that they're fit and fast and everything else. They've got more pieces of this pie to be successful a lot sooner because all this stuff is measurable. You know, the only bit that's probably not measurable is what's between the years, you know, like, but there's a lot more guys out there giving that information out or you can get access to it, whether it's the best performance coaches or psychologists or whatever it is, you know, so you can probably get 80% of the piece of the pie pretty good early on. You know, you don't have to go out there and watch these old guys hit it and play with them and listen to what they're talking about and how they're attacking golf courses and, and, and really listening to their caddies and all that kind of stuff. You know, you don't need so much of that anymore because guys come out with this nice little equation of how to, get the ball around that golf course and they are locked onto it you know there's there's heaps of guys coming through that are good at it straight out of the box but i think you can still go back and see signs of guys that were good straight away you know like yeah graham mcdowell's one straight away rory come out went bang adam scott trevor immelman these guys come out and they were and sergio was another one you know and tiger obviously but these are all guys that come out and went bang and i think you'll find that Going back in history, we did have a lot of guys that come straight out of college in the U.S. and were successful pretty quickly. But, um, you know, I guess we as older, well, myself as an older person, too, you know, you watch these guys come out now and and you are watching them intently because there is stuff to learn from them all. You know, where maybe in the years gone past, it takes you a while to – not respect for you, I have respect for all players out there, the way they go about the game, but it takes a while to be able to read a player and see what they've got good to bring to the game as far as the way that they approach the game. And now, you know, your eyes open all the time because you can never stop learning and it's happening. Your learning's happening faster than ever out there. What part does – you mentioned yourself you had sort of early success in as much as you got your card first time out and you kept it that first year, had a good little patch there. What role does confidence play in there? And how huge. does that fit into that? Because you go from big fish, little pond as an amateur to yep. huge pond, tiny fisher. In your case, I don't think you're saying you weren't even a big fish in the little pond here in Australia. And you have exactly. this early success. Is that always a good thing? Um, that was a great thing for me. I got out <laughs> on tour. <laughs> um, no, it's, it's – yeah, I was out on tour when I was 23 when a lot of guys weren't getting out there early and people struggled for 10 years to get out there. So, no, it was a great thing. I would never change it for anything. But you're doing your learning out on tour. You're trying to, you're trying to improve your golf swing on the driving ranges on Monday, Tuesdays and Wednesdays and all these kind of things. But learning out there is, is great still. You know, it hurts a lot more when you make mistakes out there. But, no, I wouldn't change it. It's better than working, Wade. <laughs> 
I am working. I was having a, a bit of an ink. I really feel like we're getting some terrific insights here into what life is like on the road for a professional golfer. And I can assure you, there is plenty more to come after this short break. But first, some admin, starting with a reminder that if you're new here and you're liking what you hear, there's also a whole back catalogue of episodes from the last year and a bit that you can delve into. Now, there's two ways to do that. The first is to subscribe, and that's got two advantages. Not only do you get access to the whole archive, but you also never miss a future episode as they download automatically whenever they're released. It's free, which is the most important thing. The most popular ways to do it are via Apple Podcasts, if you're an iPhone or iPad user, any of the other types of phones or tablets, Spotify or Google Podcasts are probably your best bet. If you're having any trouble, feel free to send me an email, rod at talkinggolf.com, just one G in Talking Golf. I'll personally guide you through the process if that's what you require. Now, if all that's still a bit too technical for you, head to the Golf Australia website, golfaustralia.com.au, and click the podcast tab at the top of the page. You'll find all the episodes there, and you can listen to them at your leisure. Either way, make sure to tell a friend or a fellow golfer if you think that this is the sort of content that they might enjoy. The more the merrier is our motto here at The Thing About Golf, and all are welcome. And finally, if you've got feedback, don't hesitate to get in touch. You can find me on Twitter at at Rod underscore Mori or by email at the above address, Rod at TalkingGolf.com or you can contact the magazine. Uh, email is golf at golfaustralia.com.au or on all the usual social channels, Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Now, let's get back to Wade Ormsby. Because it is work, isn't it? And people don't realise that. There's much more to it than turning up on Thursday, playing for four days and grabbing a huge cheque and jetting out Sunday night. There's a lot of professional golf that we don't see, and there's a lot of professional golfers that we don't sort of realise out there just what a grind it is. You can make a lot of money playing golf, but you can spend a lot as a professional too, can't you? What role does business sense play in there? We talked about your dad being a very successful businessman. I imagine some of those lessons must have been helpful to you because financial pressure is an added pressure you don't need when you're trying to play professional golf. Absolutely. Um, I grew up in my family and I didn't know any different, but as I'm getting older, I can't thank mum and dad enough for all the little lessons that I'd learnt um, from a young age, sitting at home with dad doing the invoices on the ottoman in front of me and learning about money coming in, money coming out and all that kind of stuff. And um, I still, I'm still learning off dad and, and all these things are still part of my everyday thinking of at the end of the day we're playing golf trying to win trophies but at the same time it is your livelihood and it is a business and just because we're playing for uh, big purses every week doesn't take the business aspect out of getting on an airplane spending five or eight grand a week to trying to make money and to try to make sure that it's doable to keep on going around the world and doing what we're doing because expenses are getting higher and um, your team's getting bigger and everyone's getting more of a cut of what you're doing. So, yeah, you need that bigger pot in the middle to keep drawing on to keep on trying to achieve what you want to achieve. But, um, yeah, I'm forever grateful to mum and dad and my family for the for the lessons and the way I think about the business or business or whatever way you're looking at, oh, sorry, whatever business you're in is, um, has been 
invaluable for the way that I mm. get my way through my life, I guess. We, we spoke to Scott Hand on this very show just a couple of months ago, who I know you've been in his wallet more than once in practice rounds, and he's no yeah. doubt been in yours, and you, you both understand the value of a dollar. And he sort of said that that's one thing he does feel that a lot of the young players, particularly in the States who come out of college golf, don't understand. It's not their fault, but they've, they've not ever – been responsible necessarily for their own money and money has never been any sort of issue there's just always mm. been plenty so he said he'll say to a bloke hey, where are you staying this week and they'll say and what's that costing and they look at him i don't know <laughs> it's, it's all taken yeah. care of is that a good thing yeah. no in my in, in my mind no but there's, there's more there's more than one way to approach it um like I said, like any business, you want to keep your expenses down, but you want to keep your comfort levels to a level where you can perform. And, and um, yeah, it's, it's not all about making money out there for us, but it is a big part of the equation too. You know, you need to be viable and you need some reward for the stuff you're doing. So, What's a year or um, two a cost for just roughly, not to pry? But- I've always said it's between five and six grand a week on tour okay. at a minimum. So by the time you roll in a caddy, your airfare's over a stint, you know, sometimes you've got long haul at the start and end of that, you know, and you've got probably six long hauls a year. So, uh, yeah, so if you're probably around the six, yeah, six or seven grand a week, so it's six grand by 30 events a year, it's really 180 to 200 grand a year, and that's not doing it that flash. That's just that's just what it costs, you know, and you've got a lot of little expenses on top of that. So I reckon a couple hundred grand we've probably seen most guys through at a level where, I'm not saying the big boys because they chew through that really quickly, but I think you can play at that level. But it's different. That's the European tour, and you know, there's. I remember when I used to do it for less than 800 bucks a week. You know, playing playing other tours. So um, it's all relative to where you're traveling and um, and whatever else. But I reckon that five to seven thousand Aussie a week's about the mark. There's a balance in there somewhere too, isn't it? Because if you want to play your best. You can't keep doing it at less than eight hundred bucks a week. The body at forty can't do an eight hundred dollars a week year round tour and play good golf. You need to, you need to have, you know, you need to have some level of sort of comfort just for your own health, don't you? As much as anything, so yeah, it's, it's not a choice. It's, a, it's, have, it's having a good caddy on the bag. You know, they are. I wouldn't say they're they're not cheap, but you know, that but that's a huge expense for us. You know, the air yeah. travel, the yeah. the hotels, the they're almost unnegotiables in your yeah. in your um, expenses, you know. And they, whether you're travelling the back of the bus or the front of the bus, it's it, over a year. If you want to average it all out, it's not a huge discrepancy, but for what you can potentially make out the other side. So yeah, you, but you still got to make those decisions. Some guys are comfortable, other guys are not. Like I, different points of my career, things weren't that important, and you're just happy to sit wherever on the plane or stay wherever at the venue, you're so happy to be in the golf tournament. But, yeah, your comfort levels change and you get accustomed to other things, but all of a sudden you can flip back the other way and if you're not making the money, you're more than happy to go down a couple of rows. You'll keep doing what you have to do. Yeah, it's easier to do that if you've done it before too, I guess, is probably a part of that lesson. I, like you, think that those who don't have any idea have never experienced it. There's a potential there for problems later in life if things stop going so well. Much harder to go back and do that yeah. if you've never done it before at a late age. Like any business, I suppose, Wade, you, 
you'd be probably reluctant to open the front door if you thought about all that before you opened the door. I remember my dad had a tyre shop and I worked there for some years and I just did the rough calculation one day just on the back of an eye of what it cost to open the front door each day. And it was terrifying. Yep. You, you never yep. would have started if, you, if you'd known what you were in the hole for before you could turn a dollar. It's, uh, you've got to have a certain mindset. It can't be about the money, can you? particularly in golf, because it will affect your performance and not in a good way if that's what you're worried about. Yeah, it's that old saying, isn't it? Kind of um, do something you love and you'll never work another day in your life type thing. And that's so important for so many aspects of life for people. And, um, um, yeah, I still love competing, you know, and and um, you need to make sure – like it's, it's not hard for me to go to the airport and go on an aeroplane. I always still want to go and compete and whether that tournament's in – Scotland the following week and I've got to do 24 hours to get there. You know, you still – there's a little guy inside that's still bubbling away and wants to succeed. So it's not like it's, oh, I can't believe I'm leaving home again. It's never like that for me. And maybe it's going to come for me in that in the next 10 years, but it's not like that at the moment. You know, I, I love what I do and I there are downtime and you miss a few cuts in a row on the other end of the world and you're sitting there talking to your friends on a Friday or Saturday and they're having a hoot back home working their nine-to-fivers out at a winery or whatever and you're like what am I doing but you know it's not always like that there's other times when you walk through an airport on a Sunday night and you've you've had a great week and you're like this is the greatest job in the world so you just got to keep all your stuff in check and and work in the numbers and it's a numbers game you know you got to keep on presenting yourself as good as you can each week and it evens itself out and um, um, yeah but there's it's like any business it costs a lot to keep the doors open and you kind of got to back yourself that, you know what, I've been doing it for 20 odd years and every, 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 every year we we find a way to kind of come out on top. So things are in your favour. So you got to keep on going. The, the day you don't want to go to the airport or you're going to the airport to go to Scotland and you're hating it is the day you probably know it's time to think about giving it away because you just can't do it yeah. if you don't have that drive. Damn. And I have so much respect for the guys that do walk, you know, because there always is this carrot at the end and, the game can kind of break you at the end. And there's been a handful of guys that have walked in the last few years. And I have, and you still see those guys when we go back to those venues or wherever the countries are from. And you see them, you're like, that's really cool that he has been able to walk. And I have a lot of respect. You know, like Anthony Wall was one of them. Um, Robert Jan Dirksen's another one, you know, was a great Dutch player. And he just kind of sprung it all on us at about 40, 41 that he's done. I'm like, oh, that's, and we see him every year at the Dutch Open. It's like, I'm really happy for him and it's kind of – I think a lot of us would kind of like to walk at our prime or not far past our prime, but it's so difficult because there's always a carrot in this game. <laughs> We're right. all competitive, hungry people that compete in professional sport and it's hard to turn the tap off, but I think it would be nice to walk at a point where you're not broken. It's not the right way to put it, but before you go down the other side – further than what you want to. Well, how, how do you know, Wade, when, when Palmer walked off that last green after he won his last major, he didn't believe it would be his last and neither did anybody watching. You know, In 2008, when Woods won the US Open, everybody believed that he would just come back in 2009 and win another four. And, of course, it took 11 years. So you can't know, can you? That's part of the difficulty yeah, that is. That's, that's, uh, I, yeah, I read something this morning from um, Darren Clark. You know, He won Champions Tour in a playoff yeah. well, the night before last and that's his first win since the 2011 Open. You're like, yeah. Darren Clark, I always thought he was one of the most talented players ever growing up through the 90s and 2000s. And here's a guy that's been for nine years without winning anywhere. And 
So it, it is difficult. Like winning's difficult anywhere in any individual game. But um, yeah, you don't, like you don't know. But I guess Darren still loves his mates around him, his camaraderie, all that kind of stuff, and um, maybe has a hoot out there. So good luck to him. Keep on playing whether you get results or not. If you're enjoying your life, we'll, we'll go for it. You know, if he's good enough to still have eligibility on all those tours for whatever he's done or whatever he's still doing, mate, just go for it. That's that's life. Yeah. Sure. Saw him on Twitter having a long drive competition with VJ Singh a couple of weeks ago on the tournaments. Like a couple of I'll ten-year-old kids, they were. Yeah. It was beautiful to see. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. Winning. You mentioned it. It's tough to do. You've done it three times: twice on the European Tour, once on the Asian Tour, two Hong Kong Opens, and I can't remember what you won on the Asian Tour. I want to go to the Asian Tour victory first because if I'm not mistaken, it was either yeah. the week before or the week after Adam Scott won the Masters. Um, I think yeah, I was yeah Panasonic India Open. It was I think it was week before I believe yeah. And I, did you not because you're very good mates with Adam? We'll ask how that sort of came about and what that means for a professional yeah. golfer. Um, I think you yeah. sent him a text, did you not? Now it's your turn. Was that yeah, right? Yeah, I remember something like that, or one way around. Yeah, I do remember something about that. But um, yeah, well, I think that was when I had lost my. European tour card. I had very minimal status in Europe, and um, my manager at the time, well, it wasn't really his decision, but it was the only card we had really left to play was to go out and play in the Asian tour. So I went and got my, I went to Europe, uh, Asian tour school and finished about thirteenth and got my Asian tour status. And then I was, I was lucky enough to still be playing four round golf tournaments and put together a schedule and played a year out there, kept my card, and then. I won in India, and it kind of goes back to a little bit what I said before. You know, I I, I got on tour really young, or for, for where I thought my game was. So I had to do a lot of my learning on tour. I had to learn how to win. I had to learn how to make cuts. I had to do all that learning on tour. So for some guys that come out and that won more in more junior tours, if you can say it like that. Um, You've got that winning mentality already installed in you, but I had to do it all out on tour, and so it did take me a long time to win. And India was my first, and yeah, that definitely it it definitely gives you confidence and gives you the belief that you can do it and get the job done under that kind of pressure and all that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, India was big for me because it got me into a lot of big events in Asia and. And that paved a little stepping stone for me to get back to Europe, which I did the end of that year. And I was back in Europe in 2014. So that little sidestep to Asia was good. And I still hold an Asian tour card. And it's an important part of my schedule, the Asian tour. I like it out there. And I, it's, um, it's a nice balance to the schedule that I play. Yeah, it's an important part of the European tour too, isn't it? The Asian swing that they have down through there yep. and um, sort of helps to yep. grow the game internationally. Is there a standout memory from that week in India? It was your first professional win after, as you said, a number of years uh, being at it. And I'm sure there were times in there where you wondered whether it would happen. I think every professional golfer must go through that until they get that first win. Was there a standout memory? Do you remember what that feeling was yeah. when you finally – because it's not easy to win anywhere. Sergio Garcia said this a couple of years ago. It's no easier to win on the Asian Tour than it is to win on the PGA Tour. Uh, winning yep. is oh, hard. Yep. 20-footer on 17, that stands out as a pretty good memory. Uh -huh. <laughs> I remember having a right to left of there and I made that. So, um, no, I've tried to 
I'm trying to, trying to think exactly. If anyone's played Delhi Golf Club, it's one of the tightest, most penal golf courses on the planet. Claustrophobic, not, I think, is the word, isn't it? Yeah, right? exactly. It's- and 18 is probably one of the tightest, most penal holes in the golf course. And it's all, all tee shot. You know, you can hit anything from a – I think David Gleason hit five iron off the 18th tee, a par five when he won there. And I hit a two iron rescue from memory, and then I hit a five iron, then I hit a sandwich or something. And because you just – if you missed it, it was a reload or penalty and there's nowhere to drop it, et cetera. So anyway – so I am, um, yeah, I'm, I'm 30, 17 to go one ahead and and um, pretty much had to make par up the last. So I just poked it down the fairway with a pretty poor strike off the tee, but it was straight. And then a five iron, a sandwich, and then that was good enough to get the job done. But yeah, it's um, that was huge for me at the time. And um, yeah, I guess winning's winning and to stand there and, yeah, won your first event's a big thing in anyone's professional career. Yeah, get your hands on the on the trophy, not just looking at it, actually holding it and knowing that your name's going on there. Wonderful stuff. Am I mistaken? Yeah. Or are, are there cobras in those bushes either side of the uh, fairways there at Delhi? I hit a pretty straight, so I don't get in those bushes. <laughs> <laughs> but mate, I would believe it. There's plenty of peacocks. There's all kinds of stuff around yeah. the golf course. It's like, it's like a wildlife sanctuary, that golf course. It's a beautiful place. And, um, um, yeah, it's um, – one that I always remember. Fantastic. Now, of course, we mentioned there, so you, you you sent off a text to Adam Scott and said, now it's your turn, and, of course, he repaid the favour by winning the Masters on behalf of all of us Australians who'd suffered for so long uh, the following week. Mm. How did you come to it? We know, we know from the epic playoff that you dropped out of early, unfortunately, that year with Chalmers mm. and Adam Scott. They went for about three days. I think you went two or yeah. three holes. Should have been yours. We'll come to that later. But we know that you stayed at his house that week. You got this relationship with him. What's that like? Because... A guy like Adam Scott lives on a different level, doesn't he? I remember at the Masters in 2015 down at Huntingdale, obviously he was the biggest name in the field and all the crowds are drawn to him, but even amongst the other players, there's a certain there's a certain something, isn't there? There's a natural respect there, obviously, and he was different to everyone else in the field. How long have you known him for? How does that relationship work? I get the sense that away from the golf course, Adam Scott's just a good bloke. Yeah, absolutely. That's probably the first thing before I forget saying that, you know, Scotty is everything you see. He is down to earth. He's a balanced guy. He's 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 a fantastic guy, and he's a um, and that's echoed all around the world on every tour. You know, you won't hear a bad thing about Adam Scott. He's like the Roger Federer of golf. You know, maybe his obviously his career stacks up very well um, to Roger, but if you know what I mean, he's just that guy that just is well liked. He's in every locker room. Everyone likes him, and that's just the way it is. So Scotty is a jet from every angle. Um, but how did I get to know Adam? Well, I think it goes back to our dads. You know, Phil, Scott, Adam's father, and my dad, Peter, they similar ages, and Adam's from South Australia, mm-hmm. which a lot of people wouldn't probably know. But um, Phil was at Blackwood Golf Club. Dad was down at Riverside. I think the similar eras, and they were just club pros. So well before I guess the children come along so they knew each other and um, so there's that part in the start so once I got to probably 13, 14 around that era when we're starting to spring up on um, junior golf um, kind of tournaments that's when I really 
started bumping into Adam a lot and he was obviously a standout back then and I was kind of good for my age here in South Australia. So then you just gravitate towards each other and we had that common thing with dad and golf professionals in in um, um, going on. So we used to travel together and stay together and try to beat each other's brains out too on the golf course. But he got my, my number more than I got his. So, but... No, I like. I've always liked the way Adam's gone about. I think he's mirrored a lot of his stuff on the way Norman's gone about his career, and and Norman was my idol growing up. You know, like anyone in Australia through that era, through that eighties and nineties, you know, Norman was the man's. And so, I like the way Adam went about what he did, and and we always kind of kept in contact all the way through to early to mid 2000s and then Adam kind of he left Europe pretty quickly obviously because um he kind of jetted off to America because he was achieving such great things in the game so we haven't had the contact as far as spending a lot of time with each other over our careers that much just because we're playing such different schedules but it's one of those friendships you form in your teams that um it's kind of irreplaceable but you kind of you don't really it's one of those ones where you don't really have to be on the phone all the time. When you catch up, you catch up and you have a laugh about the good old days and that's just the way it's been with Scotty. How important are those relationships, those friendships, for any professional golfer? But then I suppose you get to a level where Adam Scott is where there's an awful lot of people want something from you. Not always necessarily easy to tell who has pure motivations and who doesn't. And I would imagine that for him, you'd be a fairly important friend in that way. And some others, no doubt. I'm not suggesting you're his only friend, but that yeah. becomes more important, doesn't it, the Probably. more success you have? Adam's got an amazing support work around him, which doesn't involve me, I'm sure. You know, <laughs> So um, Scotty's got a lot of good friends around him, I know, that are not necessarily from golf. So he's got his own support network, which I'm sure he draws on like any of us do during good times and bad times. and. Yeah, he's a balanced guy and, you know, he's without naming who all those guys are, I know that he's he's got that core group around him and they haven't changed. They haven't changed for 20 years and a lot of people wouldn't know them. They might have seen them here and there, but uh-huh. I think that's what keeps someone like Adam Scott, Adam Scott because he's got everything in check. He, he's just, he, he just does it in a world, in a balanced way professional way you know and that's don't know how other, any other way to put it than that he'll be a great president's cup captain one day won't he he'll be an amazing president's cup captain everyone want to play for him hope unfortunately i'll probably be too old <laughs> <laughs> he might, might pick you as a vice captain you might get to to go you never know. The right. i'll drive his golf buggy around for him <laughs> yeah, that's right he does appear to be the one who's heavily invested in the president's cup i think he's of the right generation where he was kind of uh, 98 was competitive Round 2000, he turned professional. That seems to have been the issue for the international team. It, it it hasn't. It just needs time, that President's Cup, doesn't it? And I think he'll play a really important role as a captain one day for that reason. Absolutely. Absolutely. I hope I haven't missed anyone out, but I think Ernie yep. was an amazing captain. Mm-hmm. Scotty, I know, really looks up to Ernie in a way and respects the way he goes about a lot of his stuff. So there's just a natural progression there. That will be the next one that's going to be amazing as who's going to be amazing President's Cup captain like Tomo was, Peter Thompson. and So, um, 
yep, that was um, we've definitely got that to look forward to. Yep, indeed. Enough about others. Back to you. Two Hong Kong Open wins, as I said, the, the second one earlier this year. So you win nothing for all those years. In the space of seven years, you go bang, 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 and win three. What's the difference between Wade Ormsby twenty twenty when he wins the Hong Kong Open, Wade Ormsby twenty seventeen when he wins it the first time, and Wade Ormsby twenty thirteen when he has the first win? Mm, um, yeah, definitely the last one was the best I'd played. There's no question about that. Um, 17, I played a lot of good golf in 17 and got myself there and fell away. And yeah, I had a, had a strong season 17. It's just, um, I'd been home. I'd done a lot of gardening and, um, I was, I remember getting on the plane. It was a, it was a funny one. You know, I hadn't probably done the work. I always prepare myself to the nth degree to go away and compete. And I probably hadn't done as much as I thought I could have done just because I was, at the end of a season, I'd spent some time home after European season. Then I, I remember getting on the range that week and speaking to Richard, like um, Caddy, who's from the UK, and I said, "Rich, you know, I probably haven't done enough last week. Let's put our heads down and bums up next two days and try and fast track this preparation to get ready." And four days, five days later, I'm standing there with a trophy in my hand. So I guess that got my expectations in check, and um, that's the way that one turned out. But um, yeah. That first win in Europe, you know, it's one of those things that everyone always asks. You have your play with Tiger Woods and have your one on tour. So that was one of those ones that I was able to say yes to both those questions. So, when did you play um, with Tiger? <laughs> what was that like? We'll come to the second win in a minute and a bit of other stuff. But um, yeah, that's an interesting one. Tiger Junior WGC at Firestone, last round at Firestone, the last time we'll be there in a two ball on Sunday. That doesn't get much better than that. So, wow. um, yeah, that was that was, that was amazing. Tiger was great to play with. So that was um, something that I will always remember. You'll be able to tell your your kids and your grandkids yeah, exactly uh, forever. Did you ever meet Tiger, he, Dad? They'll say you played a bit of golf, didn't you? Did you ever meet Tiger? And you say, well, funny you should ask. Exactly. Son. Pull up a chair. Exactly. <laughs> I'll tell you. Yeah. All uh, all about it. The second one in 2017, feel, uh, 2020, sorry, feels like this is what happens to a golfer, isn't it? You've now won twice as a professional, so the expectation changes, doesn't it? Certainly from without, much less of a surprise when Wade Ormsby wins in 2020. Does it change from within, uh, and is that part of what learning to deal with those situations is about? I think there's a couple of components to that 2020 win, you know. like I know Hong Kong Golf Club, Fan Ling, as it's called, is a great venue for me. It always has been. It's, it's, it's tight. It's wouldn't. Yeah, it's kind of fiddly in a way. But you've got to hit. Everyone's got to hit the golf ball in the same spot, and it just becomes kind of shootouts from those areas. So I know the golf course is good for me. So I always go there with a level of expectation because it's one of those weeks where I should perform better than other venues so that's one thing that i always know i've got in my pocket when i go to hong kong golf club secondly it's um somewhere i'd had success before so you always get good feelings when you when you walk in hong kong golf club your name's on the board that's another part of it but that can quickly throw your expectations in the wrong Mm -hmm. in the wrong um kind of way but um the big thing about 2020 win was what happened in December at the Australian PGA. I can flat out admit I ditched that golf tournament. And that one, losing that, hurt me more than any other Sunday afternoon in my career. 
it's not who I was competing against. You know, it's not about Adam Scott and all that. It was about the way that I didn't get the job done internally, and that irritated me massively. So, um, I I just um, yeah, I just made so many mistakes internally. So. I had a crappy Christmas. Well, I had a good Christmas with the family, but that period over Christmas for two or three weeks because it was a real quick turnaround. I, I took a few days off. It was the worst drive I had to an airport on a Sunday afternoon by myself because the family went home earlier. And um, I'm not sure if many people know this, but I sat on the couch about three days before going to Hong Kong and my wife says to me, if you don't, do something about it as far as getting a psychologist to help you out and um, I'm going to make sure I sort it out type thing. So I sat there reluctantly on um, Google one night and started Googling a few different options of who I think could help me and put a few feelers out that night at about 11 o'clock on the couch and started working with Noel Blundell the next day, I think, and did about three quick crash courses before I went up there and all of a sudden he put the wheels in motion to get my head in order in those key moments. And um, I 100% locked into that that week. And I had one thing in my mind was to win that golf tournament because I knew I was playing well and I needed that last piece of the pie at that point in order to win. And um, I was able to implement what Noel was giving me. And um, I played great and won that golf tournament. So that is the one I'm most proud of for sure because um, irrespective was who was chasing me down. I had a couple of good guys chase me down, but I felt like I had control of what I was doing out there, which is a cool feeling to have as a professional athlete. Try to help people understand a little bit. And I'm fascinated to hear you talk about that disappointment. Professional golf is a life full of not winning. The very, 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 very best don't approach double figures percentage-wise of tournaments played mm-hmm. versus tournaments won. So you spend most of your time not winning. That's just a mm-hmm. given. So why does the disappointment from that event in 2019, why does that bite so hard? You've had some close calls, and I'm sure they all hurt. The Vic Open, I think, last year is one that you, know, you don't probably look back on fondly. That one that we mentioned in 2014, I think it was. Was it 2014 with Chalmers and Scott? Plenty of them. Plenty of them. You probably but, should have should have won that one, but the guys, you know, like it's easy to look back on them, but you just got to look forwards, you know, and think, mm-hmm. hang on, I made those mistakes coming down the stretch, or and and that's the ones you focus on, you know, you don't focus on the Thursday where you missed that three footer or that left the shot in the bunker on fr- Friday afternoon or whatever, you know, you always focus on that last twelve holes of a golf tournament or whatever, what you could have done different to win by two instead of lose by one or whatever. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there are always going to be disappointments. Doesn't matter what sport you're in. It's it's dog. It's it's, it's competition, isn't it? So um, um, yeah, it's it's what drives you to keep coming back and keep learning from that. But yeah, I don't I don't sit there and you try and take the positives of those weeks where you get close because you you are close for a reason because you're playing bloody good golf and. Mm-hmm. That's the way it is. You look at Nicholas has been always well documented how many times he finished second, not all the majors he just won. So, yeah, it's just I, I just remember the Australian PGA last year. That just I remember driving the airport. I turned my phone around. I was sitting in the cup holder or wherever it sits, and I'm just like I can't even look at it. I don't even want to look at the messages pinging through because it just it just made me angry. I just I just I was 
was annoyed with myself. Is that a turning point so, of some sort? Will you look back in 10 years and say that week, that tournament, that Sunday afternoon was some sort of a turning point? Something big happened there for you, do you think? Yeah, I think so. And I think I wish I think all of us that kind of get our ducks in a row later in our career wish we were younger and we could do it earlier. But it gets back to where I said really early, you want to be able to, you know, I've, I'm so honest with the way I put everything on the table and I um, critique myself, you know. I'm, I'm always trying to put everything out there, how we can get better, and I'm never trying to mask anything in my game. It is what it is, put on the table, which way can we go, you know, and I'm always doing that. My Richard, my caddy, he's been great with that. We always, we have more coffees talking about which fork to take next than people would believe, you know. It's not like, oh, we just run this system for three years and we go with it and try to win golf tournaments. We're always messaging the process and it's like any business, you've got to do that. You've got to keep evolving. You've got to keep on making little changes, not kind of fiddling with it. You know, you're making logical decision based on performance to try and get better. But, um, yeah, I think, yeah, I could think the fact that I made quite a big play by seeing Noel and implementing some mental um, tools, I should probably, is probably the best way to put it, and that I got a instant kind of um, feedback and win, not feedback, I got instant uh, result from what I put in. It doesn't always happen like that. And so, yeah, I think it's opened up a whole new um, way to deal with situations, I guess, for me and um, coping mechanisms out there or performance, performing mechanisms. So, yeah, it's good. It's exciting, but... I'm still on a no illusion. It's not the golden, the golden nuts. So no, no, there, there isn't one, is there? Twenty golden nuts in yeah. golf. Yeah, that's exactly. And 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 this week's answer is not the same as next week's answer. <laughs> same answer will get you a different result. Yeah. That's the thing will drive you. In some ways, Wade, is the picking up the phone and calling Noel Blundell more important than anything Noel Blundell has done with you since? Does that make sense? That question, that that acceptance of right. Actually, a lot of guys are sceptical about sports psychology. You would know that. Other guys on tour. Uh, lots of them would be sceptical about seeing somebody. Is that maybe the a biggest breakthrough? I think a lot more people have got people in their corner than what they would let on, if, mm-hmm. if that makes sense too. You know, like you can always visually see guys out there walking around with guys, helping them out. There's a lot of guys on telephones at night. There's a lot of people in people's corner at home before they travel. So you don't always get a true cross-section of who's working with who, you know. It's it's a little bit more of the silent guy in the corner is the psychologist or the mentor or the whoever else. You know, it's just not as visual as a golf coach. I can tell you who's working with everyone from a golf coach point of view out there. But the mental side, you know, it can be done over a telephone. It can be done on weeks off and it's building blocks from a long time ago. So it's just that it's not as easily measurable, I should say. So, um so I think a lot of guys do work with them. have had some kind of um, education from sports psychologists along the way with in through our national golf bodies and all that. You know, there's a lot more emphasis put on that. But um, you'd be pretty silly to say that um, the mental part and 
what you can get from these guys isn't that important because it is it's that simple it is. So what sorts of things, Wade? Oh, I don't need to go into completely, <laughs> but it's things like expectations, things uh-huh. like routines, things like making yourself calm down or keeping yourself in an operating window where you can operate your best, whether it's getting too not anxious or too up and about or getting too low. That's probably the best way to summarize you, you know, where you want to keep yourself at your optimum levels to perform your best. That's what you're trying to do. And one shot at a time, all those old cliches are more important than what people think they are. And that's, and, um, that's what gets the job done out there. Well, that's what I understand anyway. Awareness. <laughs> tell me otherwise. I imagine awareness as much as anything else, Wade. Being aware of what you're feeling and how you're just being aware of that so that you can be in control of it rather than letting it be in control yeah. of you. Some simple sort of ideas there, aren't there? That Yeah. Like I said, I've always been massively honest. You know, if I feel like stuff's got in my head and out and screwed up the outcome of a shot, I'll put on the table. I'm not going to say, oh, that was a bad golf swing. Well, that golf swing could have been cooked way before the where I was – the way I was thinking about that shot, and I've always been so honest with that. I'll come back to the bag after hitting a shot, water left and hitting it way right, and people go, how can you hit it there? And I'll go back to the bag and say, oh, my caddy, that was never going in the water. I've just <laughs> completely screwed my head before I hit the shot, you know, and I've always been like that. I've always put on the table. I'm not going to shy away from trying to blame things that it wasn't. Otherwise, you, you can go down the wrong fork in the road trying to – trying to fix stuff if you're not honest with yourself. Once you get to look your level, and you've been playing the game as long as you have, the physical range of skills on any given day is probably not a huge amount of variance. Your, your very worst physical golf is still probably going to be good enough most weeks to certainly see you get near the cut, make the cut for the most part. Yeah, it's the mental well, side yeah. that can be really different, can't it? And particularly those weeks when the golf swing is not where you want it or you're not hitting it the way you want. Yeah, well, I think that are too easy areas to put it kind of gets back to the little like analogy I gave before you, know, you get your ball striking you got your short game and your putting you got your mental part of it you know and they all play a kind of equal role in your different areas of the game each week so yeah the margins are getting tighter and tighter until you know you can't have all three of them are mediocre and make cuts you know you need to have something going okay to get going you need to probably have two to two and a half of those things going nicely to be in the top 10 and you probably need to have 2.7 of those three things going well to contend on the back nine on Sunday. So that's just the way it is before. If you, there's guys that were just hitting the ball well and they could be there every weekend, but yeah, you're forever working at all three of those areas to try to um, make sure that you can go out there and deliver the goods. Indeed. Which brings us neatly, Wade, to what's the future hold? For Wade Orsley, where are you now with your career, your golf? What's your when you look forward? What do you see? I think you're probably approaching forty. Yeah, I'm just I've turned forty earlier this year, so okay. I'm actually day I'm day eight in quarantine. That's where my future is right now. <laughs> day <laughs> nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, and fourteen to go, and you'll be golden. Yeah. Oh God, it's brutal. It's brutal. So no, it's this whole pandemic's been been crazy for everyone you know it's put a lot of things in perspective it's it kind of you start thinking you start putting a different spin on your life and thinking well like the world's like we don't want it to be different because i don't like people saying it's a new norm because hopefully we can 
we can come out the other side of this as quick as what we went into it. But I think it's going to be a little bit longer road on the way out than what it was on the way in with this pandemic. Um, all we can do is, I don't know, I guess thank what a lucky country we live in here in Australia and um, possibly the envy of the world at the moment being in Ireland. But, but how it really affects myself and a lot of other people playing international professional sports, it's, it's bloody tough, you know, and it's, and I want people to take that in the right way. You know, I'm not tough from like, forget about the financial part of it. It's the, the way I used to operate, the way I operated last year was I was doing anywhere between two and four weeks stints back and forwards to Europe. And I was lucky enough that Emirates and Qatar fly out of Adelaide every Sunday night and I can bomb it into anywhere in Europe overnight and Sunday night and be there at lunchtime on Monday. And that gave me a, a, a way to operate on the European tour living in Adelaide, which is my dream. So to feel like some of that's been taken away from me, it's, it's, it's hard because I have a family, I have a young daughter that's just only six months old. And so it's not going to make that any easier in the next 12 months, at least the next six months until different measures come in place. So that stuff annoys me, but it is what it is. A lot of people in worse situations. So I'm forever trying to juggle my schedule and form a schedule that's going to maximize my ability to work my way up the tours and world rankings and everything else. So um, you just got a whole different set of, not issues, but just things that are making you um, change the way you go about your your business, you know, because I don't want to be quarantining and that's the biggest issue for all of us at the moment, you know, us. I speak to all the Aussies the last few days that are in quarantine. There's Min Wu in Perth. There's Jake McLeod. So, so Min Wu and Jake McLeod are in Brisbane because the only place Min could get back to. And you've got Zach Murray up there. Lucas Herbert's just done it. Stephen Lee coming in next Monday. You know, so we're all – like no one's immune to it. We're all doing this quarantining. And, and it's hard because it's affecting our schedules. You know, we've all had to kiss goodbye the South African component and – that race, that lucrative race to Dubai tournament at the end, you know, we can't play that, otherwise you're missing Christmas and whatever else like that. So it's making it challenging, but an answer to your question I should get back to is what does 2021 um, hold for me? Well, yeah, I'll form the best schedule I possibly can and try to work my way up to the top of the tour. I've never finished top 30 or 40 on the European tour by year end and that's the kind of goals I want. You know, I want to play more majors, more WGCs, and and um, I want to massage them into a already strong European schedule. So that's what I want to do. And um, the body's holding up well. I'm probably not as fast and as powerful as some guys, but there's always work to be done there. So hopefully I can keep this old frame fast enough to keep <laughs> yeah, yeah. those young fellas' feet. They get younger, they get faster, they get bigger, they get stronger every year, Wade. The older you get, the younger they look too, I find. <laughs> guys that, you know, when guys were 20 when I was 30, they didn't look that young. Now I look at guys that are 20, they look really young. Like They shouldn't be allowed to drive. So that's what you've got to look forward to, mate, for the next sort of decade or so. This forced introspection of quarantine and this whole pandemic, as you say, and you you already get lots of time to sit around by yourself as a professional golfer internationally. Has there been any... Are there upsides to that or are there potential downsides? Is a golfer left sitting alone with his own mind for 14 days a healthy thing? <laughs> it could, be, could go uh, either way, couldn't it? Yeah, I've got a nice view here. I'm looking outside here at Adelaide and it's perfect blue sky day and these are the days that hurt. You just want to be outside. But um, 
Yeah, it's it's tough on the head. There's no question. Golf, yeah, like like you said, you spend a lot of time away and a lot of time by yourself. But it comes back to having good family, good support network. I've got an amazing family. We've got FaceTime. I, I probably make a lot of my friends unproductive because I'm always on the phone, ringing people <laughs> and, and WhatsApp groups and Viber groups. You know, I'm like everyone else. You know, I love group chat because it keeps me in touch with everyone. And you wake up in the morning and in Europe or Australia, and you get a lot of messages from the other side of the world, so that keeps me entertained. And um, yeah, my wife's amazing. She gets what I do and supports me 100%, and my parents equally. So, um, and your friends on tour. You know, I've got a couple of good mates out there, which as you get older you gravitate to the same couple of guys and you kind of um and that's what keeps you going i guess so um so that's nah, pretty similar to most people's life you have your support network and your mates that that you never laugh with and keep everything pretty normal so the last thing i was going to ask you about was that uh, sort of fraternity on tour who do you sort of run with and and why you got access to people from all over the world it's a wonderful education in life isn't it to play a tour like the European tour where people come from all over the world to be a part of it. Um, you certainly got no monoculture there, have you? you? You learn stuff about yourself and how lucky we are here in Australia, as you said, and lots of other stuff, don't you? Who do you, who do you hang with on tour? Yeah, it's, um, well, James Morrison is an English bloke. He, um, similar age to me, he was a couple of years younger, actually, probably won't like me saying that, but uh, he married, uh, um, well, his wife, Jess, she's from Melbourne. Um Nicholas Coulsarts, he's his wife from from uh, from Sydney. So you find this common ground there, you know, and a lot of it is kind of, I guess, determined by what sport or what group of sports your countries follow, uh-huh. like the South Africans and the yeah. English yeah. and all that, and the Irish. We all have kind of common sports and, and the same type of humour, so it's easy to kind of kind of um, click with those guys. Scott Jamison, another good friend from Scotland, he's um he's a great guy, but the wonderful thing about golf is you go out in the golf course and you can you kind of walk around with guys for four or five hours at a time and you kind of get to know them all pretty quick and when you you then get guys that are just kind of fresh on tour like Maverick Ancliffe, I played a practice round with a young Australian. He's a great guy, Jason Scrivener, spent a lot of time with. So so all these guys, you know, you can age isn't always a, a thing for friendship out there because you just have the same things in common or you like following Formula One or motorsports or whatever else for me. And so, um, yeah, that, that would be the main kind of um, group that I kind of knock around with out there. But um, no, it's, it's good. It's good to – it's just been difficult during this pandemic because we're only able to eat with one other person on tour inside the bubble, and that's being your um, caddy because he's your main contact. So I think that aspect's kind of – kind of um, hurt a lot of guys out there just because you're just operating in this tiny bubble with inside a bubble. So um, we'll be very happy when it can go back to normal. Who was the uh, who was the player who just – he he just said, oh, that's it, he had to pull the pin after – I think he played – Steve Johnson, four, Andrew Johnson. Yeah, just, just couldn't do it yeah. mentally. And you kind of get it. If you really think about it, it doesn't matter what yeah. all the trappings are, you're trapped. Uh, and it's uh, that's a horrible feeling. My, my cousin's a bit yeah. of a. She's in Melbourne, and she's she's not one for going out much anyway. And I was talking to her. I said, "Well, this would suit you right down to the ground." This lockdown, she said. Well, you know the funny <laughs> thing, when you don't sort of want to go out, it's okay. But when you're told you can't, it's a whole yeah, different ball definitely. game. That's that changed. There's a lot of people that have been in isolation way before this this started. But um, yeah, no, it's it's 
it's difficult, you know, it's, it's just, just different for all of us. And you're right, you know, when you get told you can't do something at like well into your thirties or forties, it's, it's, it's not a good feeling. No. It feels like you're back at school. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Whether you wanted to do it or not, now that you've been told you can't do it, you absolutely yeah. want to do it because you've been told you can't. Yeah, exactly. Wade, it's no. been great but, uh, to catch up. Kind of, yeah, just, just, just kind of, I'm um, sorry, just yeah. um, touching on that if I can quickly. I think the European tour has done a fantastic job in making events go, you know, and they've worked extensively with the government. And when I first rocked up over there, I was like, I don't want to have to do this. I don't want to have to deal with all these rules. And all. But they've done a great job in, in getting these bubbles up and running. And um, it's to just be out there playing golf again, you realize how much you love the game. And um, actually the happy place was out in the golf course because that's where we had the freedom and no masks and all that kind of stuff. So it just shows you what a wonderful game we play. And we're pretty grateful as as members of the European Tour that they've been able to get us back going again. So I think it's um, hats off to them. And um, even though we've had tough times out there, but um, hopefully there's better times ahead. You're 100% right, of course, Wade. And we're always quick to criticise. And certainly us in the media, we like to give the authorities a kicking, be they professional or amateur or whoever it might be. But you're absolutely right. The European Tour have done a magnificent job to get any sort of golf played. Uh, in the absolutely. last couple of months, and uh, from for fans as well, for fans of the game, absolutely, because you know, there's not a whole lot else, to, not a whole lot else no. to follow. As you know, most most sports have just been completely disrupted, and um, yeah, it's different out there. And as members of the two, you know, we've all put our two bobs worth in, and we've all criticised and reluctantly followed rules, and we've arced up at different things, but that's just natural, you know, when you've got such a big change to the way that we normally approach our weeks on tour and what we can and can't do, there's there's just immediate backlash, and that's just normal, but if you actually boil it down to how they could have done it better, it's very difficult to see how they could have done it better, and to have yep. 20 or 25 events that they've played since they've started up again is amazing, and it's cool to have golf back and us going again, doing what we want to do. Absolutely. So, no, it's good. Thanks. Thank you. Good. Cheers. Yeah, a big and heartfelt thanks to Wade Ormsby there for giving us so much of his time to be a part of the show. I know that he was in lockdown there in Adelaide, but still extremely generous to subject himself to more than an hour of my frivolous questions. I thought there were some terrific insights there into the realities of travelling the world and playing golf for a living. I think most of us who play the game recreationally forget that there's something more than just passion at stake for these guys. There's a business. Money goes out and money needs to come in. And that certainly changes the realities of golf for them as opposed to us. Now, as we mentioned at the top of the show, John Huggan has officially joined the Thing About Golf rotation, and his first interview will be our next when he catches up with legendary sports writer and his own mentor, Tom Callahan. I kept going to the to the um, Open Championship long after I stopped the others, so I could hang around with Dan Jenkins. I was his I was his driver. That's next time on the Thing About Golf. <laughs> <laughs> 